We're going to be looking at this second section where we've been trying to get to the last couple of weeks about Jesus' comments about life and our experience in following Him, uh, where He has uh, made uh, this uh, uh, fascinating statement in 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. It starts there. Uh, about you are the salt of the earth, and, and we've uh, looked at that and discussed that. And I would recommend if you want to listen to it last week on salt. <clears throat> uh, I'll remind you that uh, last week when we, we uh, were discussing this, that the context of this uh, teaching that Jesus is doing is to the crowd. And uh, it, that's fascinating to me that Jesus is speaking these words to a large crowd of people who are following him but are following him at, I would say, different levels. Uh, and, and, it, it, and we tend, I think, to not realize that, that Jesus, in many ways, drew a big circle for a lot of people and was willing to allow a lot of people around him that even, in our uh, judgment, might not even be real, you know, real followers of Jesus. But it's interesting to me because I think that in this crowd that there are at least uh, the following uh, groups that Jesus is speaking to. One is the critical. Uh, there's a group of people following him all the time trying to catch him doing something wrong. They're called the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Those are my people. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, teach theology and teach at a Bible college or Christian university. I'm, I'm sad to say those are some of my people. And, uh, but they're critical. And then uh, I would say there's another group that is a following around Jesus, and it's called the crowd. These are just people that are interested. They maybe have not made any kind of commitment, but they are certainly interested in what Jesus is doing. Maybe, maybe they're interested they're getting free lunch, right? You know, a couple of times they, Jesus takes a couple of fish and they have lunch. And uh, people say, well, let's, let's hang out with this guy. Uh, he, he's not like some of you that won't take anybody to lunch. But uh, no, <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> just kidding. Uh, there is uh, another group uh, called the Curious, I think, who are, who are, who are beginning, beginning to ask questions about, is this really true? Is this really uh, important? Is this something that uh, would uh, be part for me? And then finally, I would say, uh, for lack of any other word, is the committed. The committed. It's interesting that, that Jesus doesn't seem to, to ferret out these different groups when he teaches. He just teaches and says this to everybody. And to me, that's a, sort of an interesting thing when he begins to speak these kind of words when he says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. Now, you know, who is he talking to? You know, who are all these people and their followers? And I don't know that there's any way to answer this completely. But Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And I want to look at this under this idea of where, where you might maybe locate yourself. Where, you know, I'm, I'm going to guess there's probably not too many people in this group, you know, unless you just like to criticize Sunday school classes. <laughs> there might be a couple of you, I know. <clears throat> uh, are you in the crowd? Are you, are you just kind of... At this point in your life, you're, you're, you're interested, but you're, you're, not, you're, you're not sure. And that's okay. I think hopefully church and places that talk about the Bible are places that you feel comfortable if you're saying, look, I'm not convinced about this. I'm not sure about this. When I was a pastor some years ago, I, I was going to start a class in the afternoon where we lived for only people who were atheists. Yeah, I just said, hey, let, let's, let's, let's talk together. 
let's, let's draw this circle bigger. Let, let's get together and let's talk about these kind of matters. Or you may be curious. You may say, I'm, I'm not there yet, Cliff, but, but I'm sort of a curious person about this Jesus guy. And I, I haven't made that, or, or, or maybe you're part of that group, you'd say the committed, uh, the, the, the person that is really following Jesus and, and being serious about that. So Jesus says these words. So I want to look at this today about being light. Now, I wrote this fascinating thought when I said this. The fascinating feature about life is that it illuminates. Now, you got out of bed for that, right? <laughs> that powerful idea, right? Light illuminates. Wow. Just let that sink in. You know, truth to live by. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> but, but this idea of Jesus using light. Uh, I remember some uh, months ago we had a power outage here at the church on Wednesday night. And the elders were meeting in the uh, 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 room we meet in, uh, the conference room. And the, the light, I mean, it just went out. <clears throat> we're all sitting there going, hmm. So we all took our phones out <clears throat> and turned them on and did this. <laughs> For the rest of the meeting, we did that. And I thought, you know, <clears throat> how interesting is it to have light to illuminate, to have light available? I, I'm, I have a uh, kind of a habit. Becky knows about a couple others do also. I like flashlights, not motorboats, uh, not golf clubs. I like flashlights. I have one almost in every room. And these are no cheap flashlights. These are what I would call a, a collector's that has taste in light, the flashlights. Uh, and Becky, Becky's always saying to me, uh, uh, every year you've got to get more flashlights. And I say, because I like light. I mean, who likes darkness? Who... Who likes to be in the dark? Uh, you know, I, I've got a nightlight. It, it's not a Winnie the Pooh, but it's a... I've got a nightlight that when I get up in the middle of the night, if you're over 50, <laughs> right? And as soon as I bolt out of bed, that thing comes on. <laughs> Becky's going, oh, man. But, but none of us really enjoy the darkness, I don't think. Uh, Many of us are, if you will, uh, interested in being in light. And, and I want to suggest something to you. That the ancient world was a dark place. Uh, and, and I would say it this way, that, that not only was the ancient world a dark place in terms of, if you will, spiritual matters. If you ever read uh, Greek philosophy or Roman philosophy or any of those matters, you realize that, that paganism, the, the pagan religions of the day, it was pretty dark. If you go back and read and remember some of that, that you know, before you went on a trip, you always made some kind of sacrifice to the gods so they wouldn't hurt you. Uh, the, the gods themselves were very uh, punitive and often very unreliable. It was a frightening world to believe that the gods themselves would fight you. There was a god for everything, the wind, the sea, the crops, uh, all of these matters. Wine even had their own god. He wasn't awake very often, but had that. <laughs> These gods fought with one another. They, they patronized human beings by sacrifice and actions. Superstition was a huge part, if you will, of the ancient world. Even in our, uh, even in our more recent history, superstition and fear and anxiety. And Jesus comes into the world to tell us and to show us the light. And so I want to look at here this light. <clears throat> look at this. This is a map if you want to talk about darkness, of North and South Korea. I think that's Kim Jong-un's house. 
And I hope he's not listening to me. <clears throat> he's not that fun to be around. Uh, except with Dennis Rodman. Uh, but this, can you imagine this? I mean, this is a NASA photograph at night, you know, because the sun goes down at night. And uh, uh, this is South Korea, Seoul right here, and all of this. This is the North Korean continent. What a dark place. Now, Dick's been there, and some others have been there. It's not only dark from electricity. It's dark in superstition. It's dark in religious freedom. It's dark in humanitarian need of food and matters like that. And so uh, it was a, it, it's a dark place. Uh, can you imagine living in a place like that? To where, I mean, you know, when the sun goes down, it's just dark. And so Jesus, uh, in many ways, that's the way the ancient world would look. Now, let's, let's talk about this idea about light. Uh, what do you know about the moon's light? It's a reflection, right? Yeah, boy, y'all are so smart. You know, talking about sixth grade science class here, so don't get the big head, okay? <clears throat> don't, don't get too uppity on me. But, but the moon, its light that it has, if you will, is a reflection of something else. What? Man, this is a smart group. The sun. And I want to say this to you because Jesus made comments about this when Jesus said in John 1, or it's stated in John 1, 4 through 9, that Jesus is the light of the world. And in John 8, 12, <clears throat> these statements over and over again, as Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So I would suggest to you that any statement here that Jesus is making about us is that we are not the source of light. We're the reflection of it. We, we, we as followers of Jesus, and again, <clears throat> where are you in this grouping and, you know, that, that if we are the light of the world, as Jesus says, it's only because we're reflecting. We're, we're causing or, 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 or showing forth the light of someone else. That Jesus is really the light. As He lives in our lives, as we follow Him, He is then able to reflect His own light through us. So we need to remember that. <clears throat> when Jesus spoke these words, you're the light of the world. It was pretty familiar. Actually, the Jews said that Jerusalem was a light to the Gentiles. So this is not an unfamiliar phrase. They would know that. that they spoke of Jerusalem and the Jewish culture as a light to the Gentiles, a, a place where God's goodness could be seen. <clears throat> I want to show you yourself. Also, when Jesus used this word, you're the light of the world. This is what is understood as a Herodian lamp. It would have been about the time that Jesus... Uh, uh, was in uh, the earth using this language. You'll notice it's a little clay pot and oil is poured and there's a little wick over there on the right and it would just be lit and it would be carried around or as Jesus said, put on a lamp stand. I mean, it's not 137 watts, right? It's pretty, it's pretty small. But you know, I read something the other day that said that there is some research that indicates, now can the curvature of the earth and all that kind of stuff, that, that a single candle can be seen for several miles by the human eye. Several miles. If it's darkness. You know, I remember when I first uh, met Becky and went out to her farm out there in the other part of the world. I told you it's not the end of the earth, but I promise you can see it from there. I had never been in such a dark place in all my life. In a lot of ways. But uh, <clears throat> I had never been in a place where there was no artificial light. And I said to Becky, what's that light over there? 
She said, that's Garden City, which is neither a garden nor a city. <clears throat> this is some of my old stuff. Y'all have heard this. But yeah. But I said, that's impossible. I'm telling my wife this. You know, because Garden City is 35 miles away. And it's just as clear as can be. Why? In darkness, a little bit of light really shows up. And, and Jesus is saying, he's the light of the world. We're the light of the world. It, you, don't, you don't have to be on a stage or you don't have to be in some great position of power. What you have to be is around darkness for light to really make itself known. And so Jesus says this matter you're the light of the world. You may think I'm one of these little, little ones, right? You know, a lot of us think that. I, I, I think of myself. You know, I teach at a small school. Uh, I'm working with kids. Some of you are traveling around the world, uh, you know, doing things. And, and you think, well, my light's not that big. Well, yes, it is when it's in darkness. When there is darkness and light is there, it's fascinating how far and how long that that light can be seen. So I want to I work on this here for a bit. Here we go. To be a light about God. He says, you're the light of the world. Now he makes this thing when he says, let your light shine so that people may see your good. We're going to come back to that. Uh, And and glorify your heavenly Father. Now that's interesting. Because Jesus says here, when he identifies God, he identifies him with the word Father. Now I want to suggest to you something here. This about the truth about God is God's nature. The, tr- the, the light that, that, that Jesus is referring to about God's nature. You know, uh, Jean Rousseau, who was a, not a Christian, but a, but a big thinker in the 17th century, made this statement. He said, God created man in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. <laughs> you know? You know, God created man in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, Return the favor. I've told you this statement before. I've used before. That says this: You can always tell when you've created God in your own image. You know how? He hates the same people you hate. <laughs> Think about it. How do we know? Is the God that we know the one that Jesus is talking about, or is He one we've created in our own image to help us to navigate or do things or deal with people? Maybe we don't even like. I mean, just think about it. You've created God in your own image when He hates the same people you hate. This idea of God's nature. What is God's nature here? Well, Jesus uses a word here, and I'm just going to work us through this. In verse uh, 16, I'm going to backtrack some. We go back. When He says, Father. Now, this is a term uh, that was not used in Judaism at all. In fact, uh, I did some research some years ago, and the word Father shows up about three times in the entire Old Testament. Three times. And never on a personal level. It's always God says, like uh, in, uh, about Ephraim, He said, I am the one who brought you into the world. Nothing personal. The, the, the notion of God as Father is the most disturbing, in one sense, and most radical notion that Jesus ever came to talk about. Nobody called God Father. There's no evidence in the rabbinical literature. There's no evidence really in the Old Testament. There's no evidence anywhere that God is called Father. Now, part of that is because of their notion and understanding of God. 
we know uh, <clears throat> um, and rabbinical teaching in matters that whenever rabbis would speak and use, they wouldn't use the name Jehovah or Yahweh. They would be reading along or they would be speaking and they would just say something like, and then may his name be praised. He did this. This, this incredible reverence for the name of God. Mostly because out of the Ten Commandments, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. It should never be used except for anything but honor and praise and thanksgiving to God. So this is deeply rooted in this culture. You don't say the name of God. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, we, I wasn't on the team. We didn't find him. I'm using that as an editorial. I wish I would have. I have been to Israel. I don't know if I mentioned that. Oldie but goodie, right? Um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, whenever uh, the, the, the uh, Essenes were writing about God and His name, when they would come to the word Yahweh or Vayahi, here's what you get. Because these letters are not written. You, you, you don't write the name of God. So in, in, in other words, when we see this in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we know it's referring to God. Now that's an amazing thing, if you will, that they have really gotten the idea of God as wonderful and holy and mighty and great. What they don't got is that God is relatable to them. That God is in a relationship, that God wants communion with them. They're just scared to death. Gary? Yeah, Jesus was not an Essene. He's saying, yeah, the, the, I, you know, no. The, these were a bunch of radicalized, conservative, yeah, I better stop there, <laughs> I was gonna, uh, uh, people who had actually just gotten out of culture and said the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket, so we're staying over here. But, but this idea, now think about this. You won't say the word Yahweh. You will not write it at all. And so Jesus says, this God is your Father. Are you kidding me? What? Now, jo uh, Joachim Jeremias is a brilliant uh, uh, German theologian said that the single most unique contribution that Jesus brought to the world was an understanding that God is Father. The single, that's it. The one unique characteristic that Jesus brings. Now, you know, I, I teach students this and I work with them and I, I want to just sidebar it here for a second because of this. The fact is that many of us, when we hear the word Father, it's not a positive thing. That's regrettable. That's the idea that we may have grown up in a home where a father was unattentive or a father was worse than that. And our view of God, most people will tell you, is most affected by our relationships with our dad. That's the most powerful influence throughout life is our relationship or lack thereof. I was kidding my dad one time and I said, you know, dad, you were a good dad and, and all, but I said, you know, one of the things when gun smoke was on at our house, my dad was physically present and emotionally absent, right? Hey, Dad, we're going to burn the house down. Uh, okay. <laughs> hey, I need to take the car out on the deal. Okay. I mean, you know, that was just then. It wasn't, that wasn't the way he was all the time. But there are people who have grown up in homes that that's true. 
to where there was presence but no attention. Jesus comes and gives us the understanding about the nature of God. I want to I drive this here for a second. Jesus even said we could call him Abba. Abba. That is a root word out of Aramaic that is the easiest word to say for a baby. It's like, it's a, what we call libial. It doesn't require a lot of work. It's just Abba. It takes your lips. Children in America would say Dada. But the idea that we could call God Abba, that, that, that we could call Him Father, is an absolute radical concept in the ancient world. And it might be for you. It might be for you that you are like I was and others that I kind of grew up with a big God who was busy running the world and didn't have time for me, right? You know, he had the big things, you know, making sure the Yankees didn't win the World Series and stuff like that. That, yeah, he couldn't involve, be involved with that. Big stuff. The world, world peace, all that kind of stuff. Not interested with me. Not relatable. So I grew, I grew up like that, that, that God was big and great and wonderful, but not personal, not, not relatable. Jesus says, your father. I want to tell you, in this Sermon on the Mount, the word father shows up 17 times. In this also, We're in chapter 5, 5, 6, and 7. 17 times. Nothing in this sermon shows up that much. Nothing. Jesus, in this incredible teaching, is telling us, I want you to know who God is. One of the great theologians, in my judgment is the notion that God as Father, at His core of His being, is that God is love. Now, I, 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 would, I would use a, another term here. Now, no, well, t- again, haven't you learned a lot today that light illuminates and God is love? Wow. That made getting ready, huh? But, but, but I want to suggest to you that, that, that this notion at the core of God is that He's a loving Father. That, that, that sometimes for some people goes right past them because of their experience, because of their life experiences, because of where they were grown up. Jacob Arminius, I love the way he says this. Great Dutch theologian said this, that the primitive attribute, the primitive attribute of God, the primitive attribute of God around which everything else must cohere is God is love. You know, I just got to ask some questions to you and myself. If the God that we call Father and the God that we say is love, why do Christians not have the reputation of being loving? Why is that? I mean, it's probably a pretty complex thing. Why is it that Christians who declare that their God is a father of love, at least some of the research I read and some of the experiences I've been with other people, that is not the first thought that comes to people. That's not the first idea. And I wonder if it's because we've not allowed that, what Arminius called the primitive attribute of God, that everything that we know about God revolves around this notion. Whether we understand justice, whether we understand holiness, whether we understand righteousness, whether we understand judgment, all of that comes out of a coherent understanding that God is love. 
first. You know, when I was a, got out of high school, uh, I was working for an engineer. Uh, I thought he was working on a train at first, but then I found out they were doing highway work. Bad. Uh, <laughs> civil engineer. And, and I remember one time we were running what we call angles on a highway job. And they all do, you don't talk to Brian Kuhn about that, I tell you, but we were doing all these angles on the highway, and we were checking into what they call a benchmark, a place that has an elevation that's been established and all that jazz. And we got there, and Phil, who was our crew chief, we were working outside, and we're trying to get finished, and we're in a hurry to go home, and, you know, we, we, we're working out of town to go home. And, and I, we, we checked in, and, and Phil, I said to Phil, I said, well, we're off about a tenth on this elevation, which I said, close enough for government work. And, uh, you know, he said, uh, not really. He said, and I don't understand math that well, okay, so this is where I was in trouble. I don't know how to multiply letters. Uh, but Phil said to me, he said, Cliff, on this angle, if we're off a tenth here, when we get a mile out here, we're going to be off 100 yards. When we get further 100 yards, we get out further, we're going to be a quarter mile off. He said, we got to come in on the money here, or if we end up, or if we keep going, it will exponentially get larger. So I said, so we're not going home? He said, exactly. <clears throat> I thought about just telling him it was right on, and then I thought, you know, at some point they'll put a speed bump in the interstate highway. You know, just, <laughs> now listen, if, and, and, and I don't have enough time to get this all done, but if our understanding of God isn't fundamentally grounded, if it's off a tenth, if it's off a half an inch, if we don't understand that everything we know about God coheres and revolves around an understanding, that God really is love. The further out you go, the further away you're going to get. And the further you're going to be unable to cohere and understand how these matters work together. John Wesley, who's a great theologian I've studied over the years, Wesley understood that God's basic nature was that of Father. And you can go read this later, but it's found in Romans 8. 14 and 15, when he says, For we've not received the spirit of fear again, or we or said, We've not received the spirit of slavery to fear again, but we've received the spirit of adoption where we cry, Abba, Father. Did you hear that? We've not received the spirit of slavery to fear again. In other words, the Christian experience isn't one of fear, it's not one of being afraid God's going to zap you. We've not received the spirit of slavery to fear again, but we received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And Wesley said this, and I think he's right. There are two types of Christians. They're both saved. But one has the spirit of the slave, and one has the spirit of the son. They're saved. The person has the spirit of the slave is fearful and afraid and calculating, keeping score all the time. You know why? Because they believe God is. They're, they're, they're more uh, judgmental. They're more rigid. Why? Because their God is. See, again, I told you before, Rousseau said, God created man in his own image, and then we return the favor. So if I'm judgmental or rigid, the reason is, is because the God that I serve, I think, is rigid and judgmental. If, if the God that I know is fearful and afraid 
I'll have the spirit of the slave. How about the spirit of the son? Where the son, I'm the, I, I, I have the spirit of adoption where I'm a son or a daughter of God. That I have value because of whose I am, not what I do. Luann? Yeah, could be. She's saying, could it be that the reason people see us the way they do is because our first message is repent. There's part of that. I mean, that's obviously true. But when people hear repent first, they tend to simply think, yeah, well, there's no hope for me. Instead of this God that came to this earth is going to give you a chance to follow him because he loves you. And, and I think it, it has all to do with what, how we're, we're moving that direction. You see, here, here's the key thought. I, I, I wish I had more time on this. But is God, as a father, what fills your mind and heart when you think about God? If not, why not? Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great Baptist preacher in England, made this statement. When Dan Reineke and I went to see Father Richard Rohr this uh, past year, uh, I made this statement, and I'm still, I've got it in my book somewhere, but I can't, I've got to get the resource. But he, I, I memorized he said this. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a great Baptist conservative guy, said this. We will reject any view of God that is inconsistent with the person of Jesus. We will reject any view of God that is inconsistent with the person of Jesus. And I'd refer you to Hebrews chapters 1, 1 to 3 that Jesus is the last word from God. Now, maybe this isn't important to you, but I want to tell you something. There are people who are struggling this day because they're angry, they're judgmental, they're fearful, they have the spirit of the slave because that's what they think God is like. And Jesus said, I want to tell you, He's like a father. He's like a father. Now, you guys that are fathers, you know, I've said to Becky before, I think one of the things I've struggled with is that I, I never had kids. Or we never had kids. And uh, I don't know what it is to be a father. But I've talked to enough fathers to know there's nothing that you wouldn't do for your kids. Your children, they own you. <laughs> they got your life. They're, I mean, you're not going to do anything destructive, but you're going you're gonna to do what you could. I, I want to ask you, do you think that little bit that you feel and you sense might be from somewhere else? That it might be part of how God created you in His image. Now I want to move on. I, I got another thing. I told him, God's will being done. The light on here. Oh man, I don't have enough time. Whew, this stuff seems like it's going to go lots faster when I'm at my desk. You're the light of the world. The light of God's na- showing who God's nature is. And the light of God's will being done. Um. You know, I tell my students this, and you don't either, uh, you don't have to agree with me, but I, one of my roles, I think, as a teacher is to help us to think and to think through matters. One, one person said it's this way, that philosophers ask questions that, can't, ask questions that can't be answered, and religion is often answers that can't be questioned. We don't want that, right? Philosophers are people are asking questions that we may never find the answer For some people, religion are answers that no one can ever question. I'm going to question something here. About the nature of God and about the will of God. It's a huge issue here 
that I'll just roll out my understanding and what I've tried to understand. This has to do with our understanding of God's sovereignty. And uh, this has been an issue that I've worked at and looked at for some time. I'm not a, the, the only person that people disagree with me in this room. Sovereignty. God's will being done. I think it's safe to say, in my judgment, that God is sovereign in some measure or some way. Now, what does that mean? See, here's part of the problem. In Christian circles, we've just assumed things. God is sovereign. What does that mean? I believe God is sovereign. But it's possible that my definition of sovereignty and your definition of sovereignty may be a little bit different. I used to tell my students this, and you know, when you're 18 years old, this is almost puts a Charlie horse in their brain. I would say, does God know everything? And they said, yeah. I said, I agree. The question is, what is knowable? Are the actions of a free moral agent before they're done knowable? See, we didn't ask that question before, did we? We didn't ask that question. We said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Sure, God knows everything. I agree with that. I have some questions based on the reality that's in the Scriptures. What's knowable? What is knowable? Are the actions of a free moral agent before they choose to do knowable? Now, that's, that's a whole different idea, isn't it? I told you that, that that's going to be a new idea. I'm, not, I'm just asking. You've got to think about this. So this idea about God's will being done. How do we understand this? What I'm mostly concerned about here is this. That we understand that God is sovereign and His will is being done in terms of the plan of salvation. I believe that. God made the plan. He's working it out. He made all the decisions about it. I believe that God's sovereignty controls the universe. That God is providence, is overseeing the universe and bringing it bringing it to its goal. And then I think that God is bringing this universe, as I said, its completion to the very end of what God has planned in eternity forever. Because God is a Father, though, there must be something that informs us about this sovereignty. Is God's will being done all the time? I think the answer patently is what? No. Can't be. Is God's will being done all the time? No. Let me ask you this. I ask my students, can God make you do the right thing this day, today? Can He make you? Really? I wonder. Here's my question. Here's my, here's my thought. C.S. Lewis made this idea that sovereignty with God is this, that God is so great, He can create a creature that can resist Him. God is that great. He can create a creature that can resist him to not do what he wants them to do. That's pretty great if you think about it. You know that this great God who can do anything has, if you will, created a creature. Now, I want to suggest to you that the sovereignty of God has to be understood in terms, if you will, of the way that God created the world. It appears from what I can gather, and I'm not trying to be abstract here, I'm trying to ask the question about the light of the world. Are we, are we showing the world the light about God's nature and about God's will? The idea that God is in control of human beings. Where is that? Or what that, that God created human beings on His own with a measure of free will. That's what it appears to me from Scripture. That God in His sovereign will created human beings with a measure of free will. He won't make us do what we ought to do. 
He won't require it of us or zap us. That might be better. (laughs) But God created human beings with enough will to be able to say, I will or I won't. Now, there are two schools in this thought, as you know. Reformed theology, which in fact is most identified with John Calvin, suggests that God's sovereignty is meticulous. Remember that word? Meticulous. God's sovereignty is what we call meticulous sovereignty. That everything that happens in the world is the will of God. That's question seven in the Westminster Catechism. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God or everything that happens in the world is the will of God. Now, my struggle with that has been in looking at life and looking at the world to say, is that true? Is that, I mean, the Westminster Catechism is not the Bible, okay? It's a great thing. We call them the Westminster Divines. I think they were a singing group back then or something, but (laughs) kind of like the Supremes. The Divines is a lot better. But locating God's sovereignty in the idea that everything that happens is God's will. I, I, I don't think the Scriptures teach that, personally. And I don't think that it accounts for the fact that God in His own sovereignty chose, nobody made Him, nobody required Him, to say, I'm going to give these human beings the capacity to choose. That's my choice, but that's the rules of the game now. And it's a terrible thing to say, the game. That's the game. They have a choice. Now, I ask my students this all the time. Why, you know, with all the trouble that that creates, why in the world would God do that? Why in the world would God, knowing, all-knowing, knows what people are, why would God do that? Why would he give people the ability to do this and destroy people? Okay, here's, here's the reason I want to suggest. Is because God wanted in this universe the possibility, not the guarantee, the possibility that love would be possible. It's a big risk. In fact, one of the guys I read sometimes, John Sanders and John, uh, uh, Boyd, Greg Boyd and others, say they wrote a book called The God Who Risks. Think about that. The God Who Risks. He's willing to risk to say, I'm going to create human beings with a measure of freedom. So there's a risk here. Some of them will, in fact, do the right thing and love me and love others. And others will take the same freedom and misuse it and destroy it. Now, let me, and, and, you know, I, I'm going to have to work somewhere on this but for you later next week, but... Let me suggest that I'm inclined to believe that God exercises what I call a limited sovereignty. You say, that's a contradiction in terms. Oh, it isn't. In Oklahoma, there are sovereign Native American tribes. Right? You ever heard that? Had a guy cut me off in traffic that they won those license plates. (laughs) And I thought, can I call anybody about this? Right? Serious. Sovereign authority of a tribe. Does that mean they can make everybody act the way they should? No. It just means they have some control, if you will, in this matter. And here's the way I look at it, because what what concerns me the most, and I, I know we've all got stories and we can contradict each other all we want to, but I'm always concerned when tragedy happens, sorrow. A guy walks off and leaves his wife, or a child dies, or someone is killed in a car accident. And we say, don't worry, 
God's in control. And I want to say, of what? I want to know of what? Tell me, please. Now, I know that's a little disturbing. But you see, because God created a universe where human beings could actually participate and be a part of this world in which love is now possible. He's running that risk. He's still in control of the world. He's still in control of this plan of salvation. He's still in control of the way this universe will end. But he has placed himself at great risk to allow human beings to be here. Here's my, the way I look at it. If you want to look at some, <clears throat> here's some verses I would suggest you can look at that suggest that God's will is not being done. Jeremiah 3, chapter, chapter 3, verses 6 to 7. Matthew 23, 37. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Jeremiah 3, 6 and, and there are much more, but Jeremiah 3, 6 and 7. Matthew 23, 37. And 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. I'm really concerned about people, <clears throat> and I'm concerned about us as followers of Jesus. That we don't have some flippant answer when somebody's killed in a car wreck. That we don't have a flippant answer when a baby dies when they're two. That we have some flippant answer when some lady has been, had her brains beat out by her husband or boyfriend. And just say, well, it's God's will. God's in control. I'm very concerned that what we're doing with that is we're creating people that get to the point. In fact, a friend told me, a friend told me, because of a death in a family, and somebody told them God's in control, this brother will not trust God to this day. That's been 20 years ago. Why? What, what did we say? Well, we just flippantly said, God's in control. Here's what I'll leave you with is this idea. And, and you don't have to agree with it. <clears throat> I think that God is not in control, but He is in charge. He is not in control of your actions or mine. He's not causing somebody to get drunk today and drive down the wrong side of the freeway and kill somebody. He's not in control of that. He's not in control of people who are going berserk today and doing crazy. He's not in control of those people. He is in charge of them. He has set the rules, if you will, or the, the game, that they'll be responsible and culpable for that use of that bit of freedom he gave them. And they'll answer for it, either in this life or the life to come. I, I think of it like this. It's like a basketball referee. A basketball referee is not in control. You ever seen guys hit each other and slap each other like that? Right. You know? A, a basketball referee is not in control. He's in charge. He foul you up. Throw you out of the game. He's in, he's in charge, but he's not in control. And I, I'm very concerned that as followers of Jesus, that we don't add to people's grief and sorrow and just make them swallow it and say, well, God's in charge. God's in control. And I've asked people that. I said, how can you say that? And they say, well, it's mysterious. And I said, if it's that mysterious, then you don't even understand it. It's a contradiction in terms. To say, I know God's in control, but I can't figure this out because this is evil and this is terrible. That's a contradiction in terms. To say, I understand it, but I don't understand it. Now, I'm not suggesting that if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. I, I, part of my job or role is to make us think. But I can lie in person after person after person who this one statement after tragedy, God, well, don't worry about it, God's in control, 
has destroyed them. And to this day, they can't trust a God that operates like that. A God that operates by getting a guy drunk, so drunk, that he got on the wrong side of the highway and killed my dad. Can I trust that kind of guy? Or, or, or a guy that God is in control somehow because somebody got beat up and tore up and now just swallow it. I'm not calling God into judgment. I'm, I'm suggesting to you that my reading of the Bible and my understanding of the way God created human beings and the way God created the world is that this is the truth. That God is in charge, not in control. That doesn't bother me, doesn't frighten me. I'll just tell you this. <clears throat> Here, <clears throat> here's a... That I think the key thought is that we're real participants in God's work in the world. Prayer and participation matters. I think prayer and matter. If everything's in control, what's the point of praying? Just, you know, you might say, well, Cliff, the whole point of prayer, not just to get what you want. But why do I have to participate? That what we do to cooperate with God really matters. It really matters. That what we do and how we cooperate with Him matters today. Let's pray. i got to let you out. you got to go to church. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, this is uh, maybe new stuff. <clears throat> this is uh, hard stuff. But we know as being the light of the world that we need to help people understand who, what your nature is and maybe even how your will is or is not being done. We're, we're reflecting your light. We're not the source of that light, but we're trying to reflect it as best we know how. I pray, Lord, you'll keep me and us from error. Help us just to consider these thoughts and be willing to think about them, consider them, and how you might help our understanding be clarified or maybe in in any other way. I don't know, Lord, but what you want to do with it. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.